In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome, visitors, to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week, we conjure spells for you about the nightmares found in our homes. Most of our listeners have been, or will be, celebrating their national holidays recently. In the midst of these isolated times, we hope you've been enjoying yourselves and staying safe. We don't want anyone allowing nasty things inside their body, like viruses or blasts from errant fireworks. Stick to putting the usual things inside yourself, like hot dogs and frosty beverages. And speaking of national pastimes, let's talk voting, like voting for the No Sleep Movie Poster Contest. We've had a huge number of votes so far, and it's a tight race. You have until July 12th to get your vote in, so check the show notes for the ballot and let us know which story you want to see turned into a movie poster. Now, close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, we join a woman sitting in a cafe with her best friend who needs consoling after some marital strife. We've all done it, sat with a pal while they vent about their significant other, letting it all pour out, sobbing into their mocha frappuccino. But in this tale, shared with us by author David Kennington, it soon becomes clear to our heroine that there's more to this than a simple case of infidelity. Performing this tale is Penny Scott Andrews. So always be alert, but always question what you see. Maybe look closer or think twice, at least when you're on FaceTime. I'm sitting in a city centre cafe in the early afternoon. It's cold, wet... And I've spent, literally, the last hour trying to console my best friend. As an only child, and not having any relatives my own age, Wendy has always been the closest thing I've had to a sister. We'd done everything together, from playing dress-up as primary school children, through sleepovers, makeovers, ill-advised underage drinking sessions, to nights out on the town, forming some of my best memories growing up. Now... We're both pushing 40, married, and in Wendy's case, with children. 
Her husband, John, or to use the current description, worthless fucking bastard, her words, not mine, is the subject of the conversation. John's away, having told Wendy that it's for some work-related training and networking event in one of the east of England's more well-known historic towns. He left at the start of the week and had been dutifully calling her each night via video chat. I'm not sure if that was his idea or hers. God knows Wendy's always had issues with jealousy, possibly exacerbated by the fact that John is 12 years younger than her and falls under the good-looking-and-knows-it category. In any case, two nights ago, he had called her at around nine o'clock. He was in his hotel room, having just had an unspecified amount to drink in the hotel bar. According to Wendy, the conversation was nothing unusual. By her own admission, the first half was mainly taken up by her describing a terrible day at work, where levels of office politics and workload stress had almost driven her to resign on the spot. In between episodes of nose-blowing and eye-wiping, she went on to tell me how she and John had talked about practical matters, such as childcare, credit cards, grocery deliveries, and all the other elements of happy ever after that the 90s romantic comedies we used to enjoy together never really covered. She'd asked him how the hotel was, and John had described it as having character, an old building with a lot of history. He apparently said it had a real overlook or old dolphin hotel vibe to it. Wendy shrugged with her face. Not being a horror or Murakami fan, she hadn't gotten either reference. But at this stage in their relationship, she had grown to accept John's obscure references without the inclination to inquire. From how she described the room, having asked him to pan the camera around, ostensibly to see the room, but knowing Wendy, probably also keeping a keen eye out for any subtle evidence of female occupation, it was pretty grim. Beige walls with polythene-filled cracks, a rusty radiator, a door latch that had clearly been repaired after being kicked in at some point, and a carpet that would probably burn out the battery on a blacklight. The door was open to the dimly lit adjacent bathroom. The high-pitched, continuous splash of the gutter announces the bus rolling by outside the cafe, filled with a handful of commuters on the lower deck, presumably as miserable as you'd expect on a day like this but unclear due to dripping misted windows. Wendy takes a deep breath with that staggered exhalation that denotes somebody has cried themselves dry and might now be able to hold a conversation. With a deep tone of sympathy in my voice, I encourage her to tell me what happened next. As the conversation had continued, John had been keeping busy within the room, rummaging around in his travel bag, getting a beer out of the miniature fridge, plugging his Bluetooth speaker into charge, and at this point was pacing the room while talking, smartphone in hand. Wendy throws her hands up and smiles maniacally at me, saying, And that's when I fucking saw her! As John had been talking, he had turned to face the window, and behind him, visible just over his left shoulder, inside the darkened doorway to the bathroom, had been a woman, visible for a couple of seconds at the most, just standing there, naked, and staring at John. Wendy starts to tear up again. I take hold of her hand and ask her, are you sure you saw what you think you saw? She tells me that even though it had been quick, she was certain, 
that she could actually remember what this woman looked like, even expressing surprise that John would be interested in someone like that. Wendy describes her as having a stare that somehow managed to be both vacant and intense. Pale, clammy skin, long, black, greasy hair, and swaying as if over-medicated. And so, Wendy assumed that John had gone out and picked up the most low-rent sex worker he could find. As she described it, the subsequent minute consisted of her screaming every expletive under the sun at John, demanding to know who the hell she'd just seen, with John attempting in vain to play the innocent, and both parties attempting to shout over each other. Eventually, John, after repeatedly yelling that there was nobody there, brought his phone into the bathroom to persuade Wendy that the room was empty. Of course, Wendy wasn't having any of it, assuming that John was expertly keeping his slut out of shot, and that maybe that was what he'd been doing all along. Some kind of sick joke that he and his whore could laugh at as they collapsed into the bed when the video chat ended. Anyway... Despite his protests, Wendy tapped the red button and ended the chat. John hadn't given up. Wendy shows me her phone. Her call log following the video chat consisted of 13 unanswered calls from John, followed by an assortment of text messages, varying in tone between confusion, anger and desperation. Reading them, I can't help feeling sorry for him. And somebody might seriously consider that Wendy had imagined it. That was two nights ago. Now, sitting here in this bleak cafe, sipping at my overpriced bitter coffee, my thoughts are not with the distraught friend sitting opposite me, but with myself. With the fact that I have been having an affair with John for just over a year now. With the fact that I had arranged to meet him at this hotel last night only to arrive and be told by the night porter that he had not been seen since the night of his conversation with Wendy, that a customer in an adjacent room had put in a complaint about sounds of moaning, cracking, tearing, thumping, and gurgled choking coming from the room at roughly the same time he stopped trying to call Wendy, that the maid had entered the room the following morning and found spatter, blood, mixed with some kind of putrid slime, mostly trailing into the bathroom. Perhaps what's preying most on my mind is the mistake I made in having exited the hotel, looking back and up into the window of John's room and being greeted by the single most terrifying thing I've ever seen. Though obscured by the yellowing net curtains in the late evening light, I was certain that behind them was a woman, naked, and looking at me with unparalleled hatred. Needless to say, I won't be going back to that hotel, but while I watched my best friend throw back the last mouthful of coffee and signal the waitress for the bill, I can't help but feel that geography is irrelevant, and that the bricks and mortar of an ageing hotel are not going to prevent whatever the hell that was from pursuing me into my reality and fulfilling the promise of that look of murderous intent.
Riding bikes around in summer. Is there a more beloved childhood pastime? Sailing around with a gang of friends, the neighborhood your kingdom. Tires practically flying off the asphalt until something causes you to screech to a halt. And in this tale, shared with us by author Osha Lukai, it's Mr. Johnson's Field and the eerie installation set up in it. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Graham Rowett, Ellie Hirschman, Sarah Thomas, and Aaron Lillis. So avoid the field if you can. Keep to the places you know and don't go near those creepy figures. Unless you have to. Unless you find yourself forced to approach the Mill Street Scarecrows. At the start of the summer, just after my 12th birthday, I met Tom and James. We all lived within walking distance of each other, but had never hung out. Then one day, James and I both happened upon Tom while he was making a bonfire. Tom was always interested in fire and the outdoors. James was a bit less adventurous, but he still liked being outside more than staying in. We hit it off from day one and never spent much time apart after that. All three of us loved biking around the local area and some days that's all we'd do from dawn till dusk. That summer, I spent as much time with Tom's family as I did with my own. Tom's mom made soap and sold it at the farmer's market in town. With the three of us going all over the place on bike, she offered to pay us to make deliveries. That was great, because with the extra pocket money, we could go see movies in town whenever we felt like it. Tom and James also spent plenty of time at my house. When I turned ten, my dad had given me this refillable steel lighter, And when he saw how much Tom loved fire, he got one for him too. We lived near a university town, which was surrounded on all sides by farms and pastures. The artwork of the college had bled into the rural areas outside of it, leading to strange installations in the middle of nowhere. You would see things like a piano hanging in a tree, or permanent crop circles in a cornfield. The house next door to mine growing up had a barn covered entirely on the outside by mirrors. The barn's outline was all you could see at first, And if you tried to look directly at it, you only saw your reflection. But by letting your eyes relax, you could see the outline extend in three dimensions. I loved the artwork for the most part. With the exception of Mr. Johnson's scarecrows. Carl Johnson's farm was on Mill Street. And whenever I went somewhere with Tom and James, we would intentionally take a longer route to avoid it. I knew for a fact that Tom disliked going there as much as I did. James would always laugh at us, but... I think inside he felt the same way. There was nothing inherently bad about the scarecrows, but when you saw them, it always felt like they were looking back at you. There were also around 30 of them, all facing the roadway with tattered burlap sacks for heads and button eyes. Calling them scarecrows also might be misleading, as they weren't even in a field with crops. And they definitely didn't keep birds away. That was another reason why we would try any other possible route before riding down mill, because every time we did, dozens of crows and other birds would fly into the air and squawk at us while we rode past. The only time we had to go down mill was if Tom's mom sent us on a delivery and the customer lived there. Getting to someone on the other side of mill would take over an hour if we took a detour, so we just had to face the birds and scarecrows. This happened to us one day in early August. We were on campus outside of the movie theater trying to choose what to watch when Tom got a call from his mom. 
James and I started cursing because Tom rarely got calls from his mom for any reason other than to send us somewhere. Okay, we'll be there in a bit, I guess. Bye, Mom. James rolled his eyes. <sighs> Where do we have to go? She said three people have orders today. Fuck. I thought we had today off. I'll go get some snacks for the ride. When we got to Tom's house, we found a bag and a list of addresses sitting on the front porch. The list read, Two bars for Bill Jones, 5823 Pine Ridge. One bar for Jan Stevens, 3339 Highland. One bar for Carl Johnson, 7721 Mill Street. Fuck. The three of us stared at that list for at least a minute. Finally, Tom walked over and got on his bike. You guys coming? Is that optional? Yeah, we're coming. We made the deliveries in the order they were listed. By the end of the second delivery, we were only a short ride from Mill Street and the Scarecrows. James rode in front, followed by me and finally Tom. As we rounded the hill before Mr. Johnson's farm, we could see the crows. At least ten of them were perched on and around those stupid Scarecrows that should have been keeping them away. As we started riding past the first few Scarecrows, the birds stayed where they were, not moving. Then, when we were within 40 feet of the driveway, they took off and started flying straight towards us. We started to panic as they swooped at us. We were swerving to avoid them. And as I was ducking, I saw James lean to one side to dodge one of the infernal crows. He must have leaned too far because in a moment so fast I could hardly see what happened, he jerked and twisted before falling forward and over his handlebars. He landed hard on his face, glasses crunching under him. James! We pulled over in a ditch, then ran to our friend. When we rolled him onto the grass, his eyes were closed, and blood ran thick and fast from both nostrils. Tom bent down beside James's motionless body. Oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. We need help. I'll go to the farmhouse. You stay with him. Okay. Hurry. It felt like a dream as I ran all the way to the big farmhouse at the end of the drive. I was out of breath and pounded my fist on the door. Martha, Carl's wife, answered the door. My my friend fell off his, his bike. Where is he now? Is he okay? He's on the road uh, with Tom. He won't wake up. With who? Please, you need to call an ambulance. Okay, but they'll take a while to get here. Let me go get the first aid kit. She went back inside and came back in two minutes with the kit. We walked together down the driveway. Martha couldn't walk very quickly, and I knew that, but I wanted to shout, This is a fucking emergency! Can't you go any faster? As we walked, I saw something odd. One of the big metal T-shaped posts on which the scarecrows were hung was empty. At a distance, I thought maybe it had just fallen off, but as we got closer, I could see there was nothing on the ground under it. Hey, where's the scarecrow for that post? He must have fallen. I... I don't see him on the ground. Oh, well, I... Carl must have taken him into the workshop. As we approached the road, I could see James sprawled on the grass. I ran over to him, leaving Martha behind me. When I reached him, I could see that his eyes were still shut, but his nose had stopped bleeding. I bent down to feel for his pulse, dread building inside my chest. Heartbeat. Oh, thank God. As I stood, something caught my eye. I crouched back down and turned his head to see better. Holy shit. On the left side of his face, just under his cheekbone, there were three deep gashes, evenly spaced. I knew those weren't there when I left. Fuck. I looked around frantically as I realized 
I hadn't even noticed Tom wasn't there. His bike was gone as well. Had he just left? Martha finally caught up to where I was. I ran over to her and started talking in a panic. Where's, where's Tom? Who? Tom. He's my friend and he was supposed to stay here with James. His bike is gone, but I know he wouldn't go anywhere. Maybe he went to get help. I was supposed to get help. He was supposed to stay here in case James woke up. But he didn't wake up and now an animal attacked him. As I said this, Martha began to grow paler and paler. I looked up at her and seemed to see fear written on her face. Uh, an animal attacked him? Look at his face! Those cuts are fresh and he didn't get them when he fell. Martha looked as though she might faint. In spite of this, she bent down and started going through the first aid kit. She had bandaged the cuts on James's face and started the ones on his head by the time the ambulance arrived. The paramedics loaded him in, and one of them asked me who he was and where he lived. I told him, and he thanked me, and then they drove away. Martha asked if I needed a ride home, but I told her no. I got on my bike and started to ride, headed for Tom's house. When I got there, no one was home. Damn it. I rode back to my house, thinking maybe he went there to meet me. No Tom. At this point, I was starting to panic, but I couldn't search anymore. It was getting dark, and my mom told me to come inside when she saw me in the driveway. That night, I told mom everything. She seemed concerned, but told me that Tom was probably out doing something and would be back the next day. She also called James's mom, who told us that he hadn't woken up yet, but the doctors were certain he would recover. I could hardly sleep that night. I was worried about Tom and James. The little rest I got was haunted by those horrible scarecrows. After breakfast in the morning, I went out on my bike. First, I rode to Tom's house. His mom said she hadn't seen him since the day before. Wait, he's not with you? I told her what happened, and she looked terrified. I'll call Helen and ask if Tom went to visit James at the hospital. I rode away, up towards Mill Street. When I got to the place where everything had happened the day before, I got off my bike. The scarecrows leered at me. My skin crawled as I looked up at them. Then I noticed the scarecrow that was missing the day before. Now it stood in the back, its button eyes seeming to stare into mine. I walked over to it, never breaking its icy gaze. When I was only a few feet away, I saw that its hands and feet weren't just tied, they were nailed to its frame. I looked at the ground under this demon's feet and saw something that sent a chill through me. The lighter my dad had given to Tom lay broken in the straw at the pole's base. I grabbed it and ran back to my bike. When I got home, I went into our garage. When my dad had given me the lighter for my 10th birthday, he also bought nearly a gallon of replacement fuel. I took the bottle of lighter fluid and got right back on my bike. As I rode, all I could think of were that scarecrow's lifeless, evil eyes. When I was almost halfway there, my phone started to ring. It was my mom. I hung up the call and started to pedal faster. Finally, I made it back to Mr. Johnson's farm. I threw my bike into the grass and marched toward the thing that had taken my friend. I stood staring at it for a minute and then started to pour the fuel on its arms and legs. On its chest and head, all over its eyes, it still seemed to mock me. I grabbed a stick, wrapped it with one of my socks, and doused it with the fluid to make a torch. My phone started to ring again, and I just hung up. I lit my torch and stood back. Looking deep into the eyes of that scarecrow, I thought I saw a glint of fear. Good. 
I jabbed it with a flaming stick, and a wave of heat washed over me. The flames burst from every part of its body and rose high into the air above it. I ran back to the street and got on my bike. Before I started to ride, however, my phone rang again. I looked at the number and saw that it was James. Hey, man, are you okay? Do you remember the crash? Where are you? I tried to call your home phone and then your cell. Your mom said you left. I woke up about an hour ago and had to talk to the police before I could call you. The police? What happened? Tom and I were attacked yesterday after you went for help. The doctor could tell I hadn't gotten those cuts from the crash and told my mom. Do you remember anything? Yeah, but I'd rather talk about it in person. Where are you? I'm at Mr. Johnson's farm. Jesus Christ, get out of there! It's okay. I found Tom's lighter with one of the scarecrows. That scarecrow wasn't there yesterday when you got attacked. I burned it to the ground. A scarecrow didn't kill Tom. Mr. Johnson did. Wait. Tom is dead? I found out the whole story from James in the local news. James had started to wake up when Mr. Johnson came towards them, carrying a rake and a bat. Johnson hit Tom over the head with the bat, and then, seeing James begin to move, smacked him across the face with the rake. That's the last thing James remembered. Carl Johnson was never arrested. The police found him hanging by his neck from a tree when they arrived. Martha claimed she didn't know what her husband was doing, but she had known he took pictures of kids that went by. The police found these pictures in the Johnson's workshop, along with Tom's bike. No evidence was ever found in the workshop or house to confirm whether murder had taken place there, however. The crimes were meticulous and precise, which is why I'm still glad I set that scarecrow on fire. If I hadn't felt the need to avenge my friend that day, they might have never found where all the bodies were hidden. Ah, vermin. Where would we be without them? Scratching inside our walls, dashing around in our attics, keeping us up all day and night. A short-term solution is to drown them out with a podcast. But generally, it's better to, you know, get rid of the invaders. But in this tale, shared with us by author John Mark Zalapa, we discover that sometimes it's not quite so easy to get rid of unwanted house guests. Performing this tale is Atticus Jackson. So get your best stocking gear on, get yourself fired up, and prepare for the showdown of a lifetime. No, no, we're not hunting wabbits, because there's a mouse in the house. What do you do when you have a mouse? Get a cat, I suppose. Seems logical. But what do you do when the mouse eats the cat? Well, I decided to study the fucker. Turns out, that was not the best idea I've had. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me back up. I live in what some might consider a shithole. 
I myself consider it rustically charming. So, living in an older house with, shall we say, ample opportunities for renovations, you're bound to end up with the odd freeloading quadruped about. It started simply enough. Little gnaw marks on my cereal boxes, chew holes through my trash bag, small black dookie pellets littered hither and yon. Evidence that I had an interloper who was attacking my cinnamon checks. Nobody, but nobody fucks with my cinnamon checks. You see, I don't have much anymore after that harlot left me, heartbroken, penniless, and with a 400 credit score. My entire world consisted of work, whiskey, and cinnamon checks. So anyone attacking one of my three pillars of this shit existence was branded as my nemesis. The first act was to try and catch the son of a bitch myself. I set out about my dilapidated three-story garbage heap to try and find the fucker's hiding spot. The problem is, I really didn't have baseboards to speak of, and one would be hard-pressed to find a section of wall, floor, or room that didn't have a mouse-sized hole in it. After about a week, none of the traps were sprung, and I had all but given up on hunting this serial-thieving bastard. Even laying down flour near his normal dining area to try and trace footprints back to his escape hatch was fruitless. It seemed that the flour was too obvious for the conniving little douche. So, I decided it was time to up my game and find myself a natural predator. As fortune would have it, my shithole house was in a shithole neighborhood, and I had an abundance of semi-feral felines roaming the alleyways. One never had to wait too long before one of the local toms knocked up an alley hussy, and she spit out a litter of furry-fanged hellspawn. It took little more than a hunk of McGarbage on a bootstring to corral one of the wee gutter snipes into my foyer so that I could apprehend him. He was a feisty little shit. The first afternoon that I made him my prisoner, after distracting him with the other half of my McYucky sandwich... I attempted to pet him in sort of an act of friendship, or maybe solidarity. He bit me for my trouble. I named him Dick. He didn't care. I figured Dick would probably be too full of processed beef abominations to want to sniff out my intruder, but I grossly underestimated the veracity of an infrequently fed feral feline, and he set about with much haste, tracking around the other critter's munching ground. Low to the ground, I watched Dick as he slinked about my mismatched wood flooring in search of a live, wriggling meal. He made his way, weaseling up the stairs like a slinky in reverse onto the second floor. He paused for a minute, regained his bearings, acquainting himself with the yet undiscovered level of my domicile before proceeding up the stairs once more, en route to the attic door on the third floor. I personally never made many trips to the attic. When I had moved in, I noted that it was filled with rubbish and ruined furniture from previous tenants, probably dating back a few decades. Between the mildew smell and queef squeak of the floorboards, I found no reason to ever fully explore that particular room. To be honest, my time was spent drinking on my dirty, jizz, and tear-stained futon with occasional trips to the commode to shit, shave, and shower. But I digress. 
Dick stomped outside of the attic door, which had a sizable gap between the base of the old paint-peeled door and the discolored floorboards, the threshold long ago either rotted or kicked away. He got almost flat to the ground and began to let out that low, guttural cat yodel, signaling that his target had been acquired. He stared at the door, tail twitching in a perturbed manner, and continued to grumble. Well, this should be short work. I trekked back down the stairs to my futon and a cheap bottle of whiskey to drink and sulk myself to sleep, as per custom. The next morning, I expected to find the gory evidence of mouse murder. Gore, I found in spades. Mouse bits? Not so much. What I did find was a ragged, jagged, gnawed hunk of a cattail just outside of the attic door. This was an unexpected turn of events. So, shit snacks. I may have grossly underestimated my rodent opponent. What should I do now? I'd like to pause and interject here. As I am relaying this, I am more or less sober. This is a great deal different than my usual states of incredibly drunk or incredibly hungover. In moments like now, I have the virtue of extreme hindsight and clarity. At the time, this was not the case. Instead of realizing that something was truly amiss with this creature sharing my house, I just assumed that it was more rat than mouse, and being that dick wasn't full grown, I just passed it off as a battle royale that ended up in the rat's favor. Perhaps I surmised there were two or more rats involved, a gang of rats even. So, I decided to adjust my tactics and impose a hardier predator to take on this vermin infestation. In much the same manner used in attracting Dick, my urban fishing skills, I mean, I wrangled two decent-sized surly toms who clearly regarded me as their lesser, and they strutted, gonads swinging across my floor to the plate of McDysentery that I had prepared for them. For sure, I thought this would be the end of my invader. And none too soon. After all, I had cereal to think of. In much the same way, the two tough toms skulked their way up to the third floor attic door and yowled at the brood beyond. This time, I thought, I was out to win the game. I grabbed my bottle of turpentine-flavored whiskey and proceeded back up the crumbling steps to the third floor, where the terrible Tom sat outside the door to my attic. In fact, I grabbed a camping chair and a bag of stale barbecue-flavored chips to complete the ambiance and prepared for a little mammal-on-roaded gladiator primus. I quickly set up camp and opened the door to the attic to set loose those magnificent bastards and was immediately assaulted by the mole's scent in a new, yet undescribed funk. Something deep and rich in its bile-churning awfulness, laced with the slight twinges of metal at its outskirts. As if the mold wasn't bad enough, I imagined this was the rotting remnants of poor little Dick from the other day. 
The Toms wasted no time and bolted into the shadows in the back of that rotten attic. Obscured by the foul-smelling darkness, the sounds of mayhem and murder ripped through the otherwise silent room. Munching my stale chips and hooting my drunken encouragement to Team Tom, I wondered if I should grab a flashlight to catch the action as it unfolded. The action, however, lasted as long as a Mike Tyson fight. Within a few short seconds of the melee's onset, I could tell by the tone of screeching from my two tough Toms that the tide of the battle had shifted against them. The low, guttural war cry sharply shifted to a pleading cacophony of retreat. Retreat, however, was not on the enemy's agenda. The serial stealer gave no quarter, no mercy. Briefly, I saw the mangled form of one Tom try and drag his way out of the dank darkness into the safety of the hallway's light, like a soul damned to the pit groping skyward for the heaven he would never reach. The poor shit was dragged menacingly back into that awful blackness to assuredly be ripped asunder by whatever ungodly creature resided in there. After the battle's deafening defeat, I sat for a long time and pondered what had just occurred. In as little as three weeks, whatever had taken residence in my home had graduated from cereal to kitten to full-grown alley cats in as much time. This did not bode well for yours truly. It seemed likely that the whatever-the-fuck would soon attempt to eat my face while I drunkenly slumbered. The thought of that made me shudder in my half-inebriated state. But much to my later chagrin, whiskey has the dubious moniker of liquid courage for a reason. My thoughts shifted from fear to anger at that homewrecker that thought it could intrude on me, eat my cereal, and my fucking cats. It didn't matter that I had them each for less than a few days. They were like my miserable extended family, a reflection of myself in their shoddy, unloved, and disheveled states. An inexplicable rage burbled up inside of me like the first wave of a violent bourbon-induced vomiting. I leaped from my chair and grabbed my now-empty bottle of whiskey to swing like a deadly cudgel against whatever mutant rat was living in my attic and fucking my poor excuse for a life. I burst through the entryway like a demented warrior, bottle raised above my head, yelling my war cry at top lung and hitting the room at full drunken lumber. As I closed my distance into the shadows, time itself slowed to a heated heartbeat pace. Each still frame in those few seconds is now etched forever, like a camera obscura into my thalamus, no matter how much I try to kill the memory with booze. First heartbeat. I hit the separation between the light from the landing outside of the attic door and the dark of the inner attic sanctum. Second heartbeat. The shadows revealed themselves to me, like a two-dollar whore dropping her filthy dress to the cigarette-burned carpet of a seedy roadside motel. Third heartbeat. From the level of my waist, eight glowing orbs so red that they were black 
shot up at my direction and fixed on me, a predator honing in on its prey. They spoke destruction in their gaze, and that gaze was pointed right at where my giblets were housed. Fourth heartbeat. A low, hungry rumble undulated from just below the glowing orbs. It was a song of death. My death. I was man-bacon, and I had stepped directly into the motherfucking frying pan. Fifth heartbeat. I shifted my forward momentum to one side of my body and spun around on my heel, parlaying my forward drive into centrifugal force, propelling my terrified ass directly out the way I had come. In my head, I imagined running with no traction, like a Scooby-Doo cartoon. Sixth heartbeat. Suddenly sober, I sprinted with every ounce of fleet-footedness I could muster. Pure and primal survival kicked in as I heard the scraping its nails made as they dug into the floorboards for traction, preparing to make me into its next meal and presumably grow to full human height. I managed to grab the door, slamming it shut mere seconds before the whatever the fuck it was locked its teeth into my ass cheeks. I heard it slam into the door with a thud and a grunt as I continued my sprint into the half-functioning bathroom. See, like a proper loser, I kept bottles of whiskey in about every room, just in case I found my idle hands wanting. Opening the top, I ripped my shirt off and stuffed it into the open maw of the whiskey bottle, after taking a solid pull from it, of course, because fuck sobriety right now. Then I produced the Zippo my bitch of an ex had bought me one birthday. Lighting it with a practiced flourish, I set ablaze the Molotov cocktail right as that eight-eyed carnivore discovered the concept of doorknobs. With the skill that only middle relief pitching in Little League could bring me, I chucked that flaming bottle at the mass that held those goddamn eyes. In a magnificent explosion of whiskey-fueled fire, the cocktail hit home and set that shit weasel ablaze. It began to thrash back to the shadows of the attic, lighting the old boxes and musty furniture at its retreat. As the fire quickly spread from shit heap to shit heap, the creature made its exit through the window, screeching as it fell. I paused a moment to catch my breath, smiling like an idiot in victory, until I realized that my house would probably burn around me if I didn't get the hell out of Dodge post-haste. Grabbing another bottle of whiskey on my way out, I walked away like the closing scene of a John Woo film, building artistically blazing behind me. I paused, a sudden thought occurring to me. So few times in my life had I fought a battle and won that it seemed a waste not to revel in my solitary triumph a bit. I took a hearty swig of my dime store booze and sauntered cockily over to the rear of my flaming house to physically piss on my fallen foe. As I rounded the corner, I saw in full clear view what I had unwittingly vanquished. Lying twitching on the ground was what looked like a rejected H.R. Geiger sketch of a spider. The size of a dog 
with a pale, hairless, smooth, white body. It had dagger-like legs and menacing mandibles, which were still soaked in the blood and viscera of my poor, poor pussycats. I could see that my flaming onslaught had melted three of its eight eyes, but other than that, it looked more dazed than wounded. Staring at it, swaying drunkenly, I lost myself momentarily in the wickedness of the thing. What a perfect predator. Quiet, sleek, ruthless. I wondered for a moment how large it would grow if left unchecked. It began to stir, ever so slightly, proving to me that I had indeed only stunned it. Any moment now, it would shake off the haze like the end of any of my lonely whiskey-soaked nights, courtesy of a heartless succubus who took my time, my money, my happiness, and left me for some cocksucker with a better job and a sports car. And then, the angel on my shoulder was smited by the devil on my other, as a dark grin cracked over my face, growing until my teeth bared and my skin began to crack. A box, some tape, a pretty pink bow, and a short drive was all it took. She always liked surprises, and I recall she often told me she was fond of my eyes. Well, I have new eyes to show her, and those eyes... Scream out murder. Listen, by now I've given you every warning possible about horrific things to expect in the attic when you move into a new property. But what if you move into an attic and everything up there is fine, and yet you know something is awry somewhere? And in this tale, shared with us by author Amanda Fernandez, a young couple discovers it's all downhill from here when they're at the top, and the horror can only come from below. I join Dan Zapula, Matthew Bradford, Alexis Bristow, Addison Peacock, and Peter Lewis in performing this tale. So the attic is just fine. It's the basement you've got to worry about. And it's not being down there that's the problem. It's when you try to come back up, when you face the climb. After graduating from university, my boyfriend and I started sharing this attic apartment in an old house. Rent wasn't too bad, and while we were a little too far from downtown, at least we had our own bathroom and even a tiny kitchen. Most importantly, the house had its own washing machine and dryer. 
Since Raphael and I were both tired of dragging our laundry baskets to the nearest laundromat, that actually influenced our decision to move in. Now, I'll admit that every laundry room is a little bit creepy. They're always in the basement next to noisy boilers that can make some truly blood-curdling sounds. They are humid, cold, and generally unpleasant. This laundry room, though, wasn't too bad because the basement had pretty decent lighting, and the machines were brand new. If I tell you now that neither my boyfriend nor I liked to go down to the basement, don't think it was because it was a dark and scary place that brought all of our childhood fears to surface. It was mostly because of the stairs. Because the house had been split into two separate apartments, plus the attic where we lived, we could only access the basement by going around the house and down a narrow flight of wooden stairs. The steps were a little too short and steep, but other than that, Raphael and I had been rather impressed with the house. We looked around a little bit, commented on how convenient it would be to have a laundry room at our disposal, then went upstairs again. I had been so distracted talking to Raphael about signing the lease that I almost didn't notice the creeping feeling until it made the hair on the back of my neck stand on end. I turned sharply. Raphael called me from the door right above me. You okay there, Mark? The landlord, a rather pleasant man in his 60s, gave me a wary look, but said nothing. Yeah, it's fine. I threw the basement one final look, searching for something out of the ordinary. There was nothing. I couldn't really put it into words at that moment. It happened so fast and so briefly that I just brushed it aside as one of those creepy feelings everyone gets sometimes. It wasn't until later that night, when we started packing, that I told Raphael what had been bothering me. I thought there was someone behind me. He looked up from the box he'd been filling with textbooks. When we were coming out of the basement, I felt like someone was right behind me. You too. You felt it? Yeah, I thought it was you at first, but then I turned around and you were like five steps behind me. Did we make a bad decision signing the lease? Would be just our luck to end up in a haunted house. Yeah, fuck, Ghost. If I never have to share a bathroom with five other people, it'll be too soon. I laughed, but couldn't push aside the uneasiness I was feeling. The fact that Rafa didn't look nearly as shook as I felt led me to believe that he hadn't felt exactly the same thing as I had. When climbing those stairs, I didn't just think there was something behind me. I knew someone was there, trailing in my steps and coming so dangerously close I could almost feel their body against mine, as if I were in a crowd and a stranger was about to collide with me. In all likelihood, there was nothing to worry about. You're probably right. I put that out of my mind and didn't think about it until a week after we'd moved into the attic and I had to do the laundry. Despite my initial worry, the memory of being spooked by absolutely nothing had quickly been pushed to the back of my mind as we spent the next couple of weeks packing. I went down to the basement, loaded the washing machine, added the detergent, pressed the button, 
then started up the stairs, wondering what I would do with the next 50 minutes. My feet had only touched the third step when I felt it again. The certainty. The absolute certainty that someone was standing right behind me. I stopped to look over my shoulder. There was no one behind me, and I felt rather foolish looking back at the washing machine. Nothing scary here. No one was reaching out with a skeletal hand to pull me back down and take away my soul. I continued up the stairs, trying to ignore the fact that the feeling didn't go away until I opened the door. Then, like a pair of shackles weighing you down, the sensation was gone. Isadora, one of the sisters who shared the second floor apartment, was coming back home and she must have seen me shudder. Spooky, isn't it? What? The stairs. It's okay, everyone feels it. We think there's a friendly ghost living down there or something. Seriously? Sure, we named him Joe. Isadora smiled, and I couldn't tell whether she was joking or not. Right. Well, if there were any violent crimes in this house, I don't want to hear about them. It wasn't that I was particularly superstitious or troubled by the idea of a ghost living downstairs. I just couldn't shake the feeling that something was wrong, and that this was not as harmless as I first thought. If I was forced to examine it closely... I might even consider moving. We didn't, though. Rent was reasonable, and our housemates were quite pleasant and quiet. Raphael and I continued living there for almost a year, but we never really got used to the stairs. Isadora and her sister Elena clearly had, and they made jokes about it and mentioned their friendly ghost as if it were an invisible pet they were fond of. They speculated on the nature of the haunting with gloomy yet gleeful theories. Maybe some guy killed himself and his ghost is trapped in there. Or maybe there are bodies in the walls or under the stairs. I didn't think there were bodies hiding anywhere. The floors were made of concrete, the wallpaper hadn't been changed since the 1950s, and the stairs had open steps. The only thing underneath it was a pile of junk the landlord and his wife had accumulated over the years. Raphael and I were not horror junkies, and took no pleasure talking about the ghost in the basement. Raphael commented on how much he hated those stairs every time he had to go down there, and said he was glad at least the rest of the house was peaceful. Which was the strangest thing once I thought about it. Nowhere else in the house could we feel a presence, not even a little bit. Nothing ever changed places, no weird noises could be heard in the middle of the night. No shadows or strange reflections ever caught us off guard. It was only those damn stairs. About six months in, Raphael offered to do all other chores as long as he didn't have to do laundry anymore. He was white as a sheet, and I could tell he was barely holding it together. I don't care what it is. I can even do dishes every day if you want me to, but I'm not going back there. What happened? Did you see anything? It touched me. What do you mean, it touched you? I felt it touch me, Mark. 
Not like before. It wasn't behind me. It brushed past me. I swear I could feel their knuckles against the back of my hand. I tried to tell Raphael that the girls had probably gotten into his head, and he had only imagined someone touching him. I told him about how our brain sometimes fills the gaps of what it cannot explain with unreasonable facts. Basically, I repeated out loud everything I had been telling myself for six months in order to keep my sanity. Raphael told me to go fuck myself with my psychology degree. You know there's something weird, Mark. You know it, so don't be stubborn. It wasn't a long fight. We made up fairly quickly. After that, I took laundry duties upon myself, and nothing out of the ordinary happened for a while. Some days, the certainty that someone was following me outside was nothing but a whisper in the back of my mind. Other days, it was so strong I actually walked up the stairs backward to keep an eye on the basement. There was never anyone behind me, but I swear I could still feel it standing in front of me. Its pace matching mine, its invisible body undeniable even if I couldn't see it. If I closed my eyes and put some effort into it, I'm sure I would have been able to picture its face in my mind, but I never did. I just walked faster, taking the stairs two or three steps at a time, not giving whatever it was that lived in the basement the chance to catch up. That was until two months ago, when two full loads of laundry meant I was slowed down considerably. As I slugged up the stairs, I could recognize the feeling when it crept up on me, but I told myself it would vanish once I opened the door. It always did. I guess our friendly ghost didn't like going outside. It came up to me, one step after another. I could tell that its feet dragged at the same pace as mine, as if it too were dragging something heavy. It would vanish in a moment, I told myself. It would vanish as soon as I... Something leaned into my ear. I thought of Raphael and how he'd said he could feel the knuckles of this... person... thing... I don't know, he could feel it touching his skin and... Oh God, now I could feel their fucking lips touching the back of my ear and its icy breath. Thank you... I dropped the clothes I was carrying, and they tumbled down the steps as I ran for the door. I don't think I'd ever been so scared in my life. I don't even think it was because of the incorporeal voice whispering in my ear. Rather, it was its tone. It sounded almost like a mockery of what gratitude was supposed to sound like. As if it had heard those words in the lips of others several times before and it had learned with the sole purpose to scare me with it. I asked Elena to go fetch my laundry, and then told Raphael that I'd rather use the laundromat two blocks down from that moment on. He didn't fight me on it. The girls asked me about the ghost, dying for some first-hand experience. I answered their questions for five minutes, then told them to never mention it again. It hadn't been funny. It had been fucking terrifying, and I didn't want to know what kind of thing had a voice like that. More to the point, I didn't want to know what it was thanking me for. 
Ignorance was bliss, and I wish I could have stayed that way. Last week, our landlord let us know that he would be renovating the basement. He said it was time because the boiler was too old and the place hadn't really gotten a fresh coat of paint in decades. I think, though he never confirmed it, that he thought changing things around, perhaps getting rid of the clutter and the peeling wallpaper, would make a difference. Maybe once the renovations were done, we could all go downstairs again and realize this whole ordeal had been nothing but a figment of our imagination. Since our landlord and his wife were in their late sixties and not in the best of shapes, the girls offered to move all of the junk the couple had accumulated in the basement upstairs. I can only assume that they wanted to explore the space in more detail, maybe contact the dead while they still had the chance. Raphael and I made the decision to stay away while they moved things around. If they did find a body in an old suitcase, we wanted no part in it. However, that afternoon, Elena knocked on our door. She didn't look disturbed, only a little confused. Hey, sorry to bother you guys, but um, can you come downstairs for a moment? We found something a little weird, and we thought... Yeah, we're really not interested in examining demon-possessed dolls or whatever you found. (laughs) No, no, it's not that. It's just a bunch of old junk, nothing creepy. But we think there might be some sort of wild animal living in the basement. Could you just take a look? We decided there was no harm in that and followed Elena to the basement. The sisters had moved a large collection of old chests, cardboard boxes, and assorted knickknacks to the middle of the basement, clearing the space under the stairs. Turns out, the girls had gotten one thing right in their speculation. There had been something under the stairs all along, just not what they'd expected. Right behind a heavy chest, next to the wall, There was a hole big enough for a small person to squeeze out of. I took a closer look, trying to see how far it went, but I couldn't tell. It was very dark, so I can only assume it was rather deep. Around it, we could see deep scratch marks, as if a wild animal with particularly sharp talons had clawed its way out of the hole several times. What kind of animal can dig a hole in concrete? I have no idea. I was a little relieved, to be honest. Sure, it was a little creepy, but if that hole led outside, then maybe we had all been the victims of a harmless draft and let our imaginations get the best of us. Think it could be a raccoon, or...? Animals don't make holes like that. I looked at Raphael. He had his eyes on the hole, but he didn't look curious or interested in it. Rather, he looked as if he were putting numbers together, trying to reach the solution to a problem. How deep do you think it... Where's Isadora? Elena looked at him, then around the basement for a moment, as if realizing for the first time that her sister was not here. You know what? I'm not sure. I guess she might have went to the washroom when I went to get... We're going upstairs, now. Raphael grabbed me by the hand and forced me up the stairs. 
When I felt something brushing up against my back, I picked up the pace. The landlord had no idea there was a hole in the basement. The house had been his father's, and the basement had stayed relatively untouched for the past 30 years. Raphael insisted that he go downstairs to check, but refused to go along with him. He shuddered when he walked back out a moment later, followed by Elena, who still didn't seem bothered by her findings, nor by the fact that her sister seemed to have vanished into thin air. The landlord looked worried. Yeah, that's a big hole. Hmm. It's gonna cost an arm and a leg to fix it. Mark and I are moving out. The landlord stared at Raphael. I did the same. We're very sorry about the short notice, but we can't stay here anymore. I tried to speak. He ignored me and went on. We understand that we're breaking the terms of our lease. You can keep our deposit, but we are moving out as soon as we find another place. Honestly, I think you should do the same. There was some discussion. Our landlord was actually a pretty nice guy, and he liked us because we always paid on time. He also didn't want to have to find other tenants on such short notice, but Raphael was adamant about it. I was too stunned for words. The moment we got to our apartment, I exploded. What the hell, Rafa? We can't just move! We're packing. Again, I couldn't do much more than just stare at him. Excuse me? We're packing and we're staying at my parents until we find someplace else. His parents still referred to me as that boy who's your roommate. Spending an undetermined amount of time in their house was not my idea of fun. Rafa, don't you think you're overreacting to a hole in the floor? No. I watched as he bent down to pick our suitcases from under the bed. My patience was wearing thin. Okay, I know that the stairs are creepy and that there were a couple of incidents that we couldn't explain, but listen, that hole actually explains a lot. Maybe the girls are right and that there are wild animals living in the... Raphael stopped what he was doing to look me in the eye. Mark, nothing lives in that hole. Look, I hadn't thought about it. I don't know why, because it seems rather obvious in retrospect, but I don't know. I just never realized... Realized what? Nothing ever follows us back down. I don't care what's in that hole, Mark. But whatever they are, I think we've been leading them out. You're home alone, your partner's working late. What do you do? Grab a bag of Doritos and some Mountain Dew, strip down to your underwear, and play Xbox. Uh, your mileage may vary. But the point is, when you hear your loved one coming back earlier than expected, you're likely going to be alert. That's the case in this tale, shared with us by author Scott Newman. 
where we discover that our hero is quite right to pay attention to his companion's return. Performing this tale is Mike Delgadio. So listen for the telltale signs of the one you love, those familiar footsteps, that recognizable breathing, that comforting voice. Wait, they're not there? Then maybe it wasn't my wife. I now know what came home last night wasn't my wife, but it was almost too late before I did. I was already in bed, still lying there awake when I first heard someone at my back door. I didn't know what time it was, I just remembered it had been a while since I had gone to bed. My wife Kim had been in an all-day conference, and she said she wasn't going to get home till late that night. No, it had just been our two puppies and me. Our bedroom is located right above the back door, so if you're awake, it's easy to hear someone coming in that way. I had left the back porch light on since I knew she'd be home later. The first sign something wasn't right was that Kim seemed to have trouble opening the door. Now, it's not unusual for the door to stick sometimes, or the deadbolt to be hard to turn as we lived in an older house, but on most nights, neither one of us had any trouble. I laid there in bed and listened. It took much longer than it should have for her to unlock the door. It sounded like she was going through every key at random and was trying them all until one worked. I waited for a text message from her for me to come down and help, but it never came. Finally, after what seemed like forever, she got the door open. I expected the puppies to start barking even though they'd already been taken out for the night. Sometimes after they'd been in the kennel for a while, they'd still bark if a loud noise spooks them. And sure enough, It didn't take long as they both started to bark. Listened for my wife to tell them to be quiet, but she didn't say anything. I heard footsteps as she climbed the two steps up from the back landing into our kitchen. The dogs didn't give up though and kept barking. After a bit of not hearing anything else, I heard more footsteps as Kim turned around and started to go back down the landing. Then I heard her go down into our basement where we kept the dog kennel. I never heard her say a word as I heard the door open to the room where our dogs slept. Their barking quickly became whimpers, and then all at once went silent. That should have sent me into action, but it didn't. After a bit, I heard the door being shut, and then footsteps back up the stairs. She continued into the kitchen, and then it went silent again. Sometimes she'll sleep on our living room couch as she always says she doesn't want to risk waking me up coming upstairs. It was then that I noticed that she hadn't turned off the back porch light like she usually does after she gets home. Some time seemed to pass as I continued to lay there and stare at the wall, now more awake than I had been before. I had started to close my eyes for a bit when I heard footsteps again. This time, they were headed upstairs. I think that was the moment that did it for me, forced me to realize something was wrong. Whoever it was coming up, did not sound like my Kim. After all, you don't live with someone for years without picking up on the most minute details, like, for example, how they tend to normally sound as they walk up a flight of stairs. But these steps were slow and deliberate, each one sounding more staggered than the last. A couple of times I would hear a small thud like the person lost their balance and barely caught themselves against the wall. Was she drunk? No, 
My wife doesn't like to drink, and certainly not to the extent of barely being able to manage the stairs. Everything about this felt wrong, and as the footsteps came closer to the top, I could feel my heart rate quicken and my whole body tense up as I tried to remain as still and as quiet as possible on my side. They reached the upstairs, and with my bedroom door partially open, I could hear labored breathing. Like how my mom used to, years ago, when she was on oxygen at home. I thought momentarily about calling out and asking if she was okay, but a voice of reason in my head stopped me. Probably kept me alive to tell you about this. I remained still as I heard the intruder come into the room slowly. I didn't dare move or say anything. I closed my eyes, hoping they'd go away. As they stood at the foot of the bed, I heard something new. It sounded like a, a wet noise, like something was dripping on the floor every so often. And there was a smell now, too. The only way to describe it was a mixture of body odor and something spoiled that had been in the fridge too long. What happened next is what finally compelled me to do something, anything. The person walked over to my wife's side of the bed and laid down next to me. I could feel as their arms and legs got on, seemingly one at a time, perhaps not to startle me awake. It felt like their feet landed all the way at the end of the bed, even with mine, their legs way too long to belong to my wife who was a foot shorter than I was. I gripped my pillows tighter as they went still and didn't do or say anything. They just laid there next to me like it was normal. It was at that moment I felt my first ounce of courage spill over me, and I contemplated getting the hell out of there. But before I made my move, I heard, no, I felt hot breath on the back of my neck. And then, something that felt like sandpaper lick just behind my ear. In what seemed like a few seconds, I threw the sheet off, grabbed my phone next to me on the nightstand, and ran into the bathroom down the hall. I slammed the door behind me, locked it, and braced myself against it. I fidgeted with my phone to call 911 before I heard soft footsteps coming from the bedroom towards the bathroom door. I didn't have the lights on, so I couldn't see anything. Not that I really wanted to. I tried to listen with my ear up against the door, but it was quiet again. Quiet until the doorknob slowly turned. I could feel the slightest pressure on the door, trying to ease it open, but the lock held and it ceased. I expected something to bang on the door, but nothing happened. I never even heard the footsteps again. I never did call the cops or anyone else. I stayed in the bathroom for the rest of the night. I must have fallen asleep because I woke up on the bathroom floor the next morning. I looked under the door as best I could, and after a bit of psyching myself up, I opened it. I slowly searched the upstairs room by room, holding tightly onto one of my golf clubs that I had retrieved from the hallway closet. I called for my wife but I didn't get any answer. As I searched, I found little drops of what looked like dried blood everywhere, including on the back of my neck. I followed the drops downstairs into the kitchen where I found the back door still open. I hadn't heard the puppies yet, so I checked on them to make sure they were okay. And they were still there in the kennel with its door open. Their heads were never found. 
It's always nice to find something you're really enamored with. Hobbies like collecting precious items. It might seem silly to others, but to us, the things we collect are treasures. And for Kate's husband, Mike, his collection consists of things blue and oval. And in this tale, shared with us by author Jeff Miller, Mike's worryingly protective obsession with his unusual zygote receptacle does not go unnoticed by his wife. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Graham Rowett, and Mick Wingert. So let's get cracking and break this story wide open before anyone can hatch a plan to steal the egg. My husband brought the egg home from the farmer's market. It was in a bag that contained 11 other eggs, collard greens, some carrots, and a small pumpkin. The egg was bright blue. We've seen all kinds of colors in our egg cartons over the years. Olive green. So brown they looked like copper. The usual white. But this egg, this one was a brighter blue than a robin's. I don't want to cook that one. I'm going to put it in a special part of the fridge, okay? So don't boil it or fry it or scramble it or anything. He started pulling things out of the fridge to make room. Making a nest. You are making a nest? In our fridge? For a chicken egg? He turned to face me. What? You said you were making a special place for the blue egg in the fridge. You called it a nest. He turned from the fridge to stare at me. His head cocked slightly. I'm making room for the produce. Are you okay? What about an egg? I looked at the table. The carton was closed, so I opened it. There, in the third dimple from the left in the front row, was the blue egg. I pointed to it. Wow, that's a beautiful egg. That's just what you said when you came home and showed it to me. You told me not to cook it. He stared as if he wasn't sure he knew me. Kate, I didn't even open the eggs at the farmer's market. I just picked them up from Herbert, like always. This is the first I've seen of it. You're worrying me. Do you feel well? I took a step back from Mike before I realized I was afraid. The egg was still blue. Mike's face was a mask of concern. No, I don't feel well. I'm going to go lay down. Kate? I left the kitchen and slept for the rest of the evening and through the night. When I woke, I could smell breakfast. I could smell eggs. I slipped on my robe and ran to the kitchen. Before I could ask, Mike turned to me and smiled. The eggs were brown. Surprised at how relieved I felt, I gave him a hug from behind. Need some help making toast? Or bacon? Nope. Toast is in and bacon is already cooked. Go grab yourself a piece from the table. The egg was in the fridge. Mike had wrapped it in a fuzzy dishcloth and tucked it in a hollow formed by green lettuces and a head of Napa cabbage. He spooned half the scrambled eggs onto my plate. What are you looking for in the fridge? I grabbed a mug and poured myself some coffee. Just wanted to see where the blue egg was. Ah, well, it's in its nest. I put down my mug... You got angry at me last night when I said you called it a nest. 
And now you're calling it a nest? Mike put the plates down next to the oven. Kate, why are you going on about a nest again? I asked you if you're ready to eat. My brain felt wobbly. He walked over next to me. It didn't feel safe. You slept for 14 hours without dinner, and now you're talking nonsense again? Kate, we should take you to the doctor. You could be having a stroke or something. Was Mike trying to make me feel crazy? Trying to make me doubt I'd heard him say he was making a nest? Or that he was hatching something? Chicken eggs from the market weren't fertilized, right? So this must not be a chicken egg. Are chicken eggs blue? Kate! Kate, you're staring through me. Do you even know I'm here? We're going to the hospital right now. He grabbed his coat in mine, took my hand, and led me to the door. Mike, I'm fine. I tried to protest, but he wouldn't hear it. At the hospital, the doctor asked me a lot of questions, and they performed a few tests, but couldn't find anything wrong with me. Even Mike agreed that I wasn't acting strangely anymore. I was upset, but tried not to show it. Even if he wasn't gaslighting me, he'd brought me to the hospital over a simple misunderstanding. That was not okay with me. That night, I woke up just before one in the morning, and Mike wasn't in bed. I didn't stop to put on my robe. I grabbed my phone from the nightstand, crept to the door, and listened. He was singing something. I turned on the video recorder and cracked open the door. Mike was standing in front of the fridge, and he was singing. It wasn't a tune I recognized. I'm not sure it was a tune at all. I raised the phone and pressed record. A light shone from the phone, but Mike didn't react to it. He just kept singing to the fridge, which was closed. I recorded him for a couple of minutes, turned it off, and went back to sleep. The next morning, Mike was making eggs again. Fried this time. Over easy. We like runny eggs, especially with toast. I checked my phone. The video was there. Mike, what were you doing last night singing to the fridge? He tried to play like I was crazy again. What are you talking about, Kate? But before he could get close enough to grab me... I pressed play and thrust my phone forward like a shield. The song came again, a bit tinny but loud enough to hear. I turned the volume all the way up. He stared and listened. We both did, but not just to the song from the phone. We also heard an atonal, rhythmic harmony coming from the fridge. The fridge door vibrated slightly in the morning light. What am I supposed to be looking at? I see the fridge. Is this supposed to mean something to me? He was lying. He had to be lying. Whether he was lying or not, I could see he was thinking of taking me back to the hospital. Mike was stronger than me. I needed to change his mind, make him think the gaslighting was working. I laughed and said (laughs) it was all a joke and that the eggs smelled delicious, so let's eat. And we did. But we both knew he had been singing and we both saw the fridge vibrating. We knew the egg was there. We knew it needed his singing, but we pretended we didn't. Mike was supposed to go to work, 
I'm a freelance writer, so I work from home. But Mike didn't go to work. I asked him why. Sweetie, why would I go to work on a Sunday? I looked at my phone, which clearly showed it was Monday, and I showed it to him. He showed me his phone. It also showed Monday. But he said they both said Sunday. I didn't argue, and he stayed home. After all, I can't very well force him to drive to work. He spent the morning on his phone. He walked outside on the patio with it and talked for a long time, even though it was very cold. I think he was talking to doctors or friends or family. I could hear some of what he said if I sat close to the French doors. Break. Hallucinations. Concerned. And egg. He was laying the groundwork to do something drastic, I knew. But the egg. While he was outside, I could look in the fridge without him calling me crazy. The egg was an even brighter blue and the nest that Mike had made was bigger, because as the egg had vibrated, it had slowly pushed the greens further and further away. I closed the refrigerator door and went to my home office to work. I had deadlines to meet. I don't know what Mike did the rest of the day. I never even heard him come inside, but I wasn't going to go look and risk antagonizing him. Ever since he'd made that nest, he'd been giving me nasty looks if I got within ten feet of the fridge. And he'd mentioned my egg obsession more than once under his breath. I was setting the table for dinner when I heard the pop. Mike had just opened the refrigerator door to get some butter. I turned as he screamed. His hands were holding his left ear as he shook his head violently. A thin, fuzzy worm about 12 inches long was whipping and writhing as it wriggled through his fingers and into his head. It was electric blue, and it glowed. He tried to grasp it, but the fuzz was slick, like it had been dipped in petroleum jelly. In just a couple of seconds, its entire length vanished into Mike's ear canal. He had a small piece of blue eggshell on his cheek, which I picked off for him. He thanked me. His eyes, two beautiful, infinitely deep pools of water. It was then that I knew that Mike was the host, and that he didn't know. Or if he knew, it wasn't all of him that knew, but just a part. To protect him. To ensure he did nothing rash. I was the caretaker. I knew this, even if Mike didn't. So I asked him if he felt okay, and he said he did, though he felt a little dizzy and had a headache. I sat him down at the table, served him the dinner he cooked, and got him a couple of Tylenol. He said he felt a little better, but thought he'd go to bed early. I said that was fine. As he walked to the bedroom... I saw the tip of the blue worm wiggling just outside of his right ear, but only for an instant. I think it was an accident. I think it was just getting to know its new home. Before I went to bed, I put the lettuces and cabbage back in the crisper where they belonged and gathered up the eggshell pieces with the dishcloth. When I was done, it no longer looked like Easter beside the milk.
Mike went to work the next morning, but I got a call from John just after lunch. He works with Mike and our families are close. Kate, is everything okay? I kept writing while talking to him. I think so. Why? Something up? Mike's acting funny. I asked him about it and he said he was worried about you, but wouldn't say anything else. I'm probably breaking his trust calling you like this, but you know how much Anne and I care about you. Are you okay? I'm fine. Two nights ago, though, I had a senior moment, and he was convinced I was having a stroke. We got it checked out, though, and it was nothing. How is he acting funny? Is work going okay? I think work's fine. He's just cold and distant, you know? Like he's got something heavy on his mind. Um, you sure you're okay? I assured him I was, and he made me promise not to tell Mike he'd called. When Mike returned home, I saw what John had been talking about. Mike always seemed to be looking a few feet behind me, and his forehead was perpetually wrinkled. But behind his worried face, I could see that his eyes were an even deeper blue than they had been the day before. Bluer than the day we had met, for that matter. Soup's ready. It's in the slow cooker. He stared at me, longer than he should have, really, and tried to smile. Yum. Sitting across from him, I watched him spoon the split pea soup into his mouth, crunch the salad in his teeth, and mop up the remains with a hunk of bread. Is there any of the lasagna left? I'm still hungry. And no wonder. When he opened his mouth, I caught a glimpse of the hatchling, snaking down out of his sinus cavities to slurp up chunks of food before they disappeared down his throat. It was a little overeager. Mike's inner cheek was bleeding. He claimed he had bitten himself by mistake. He finished off the lasagna and grabbed an apple to eat while he read by the fire. But I knew he wouldn't stay long. He would start slowing down soon. After just a few minutes, he got up and took another Tylenol, complaining about his head. He washed it down with a glass of ice water and then poured himself another. Honey, are you overheated? Why don't you take a cool bath? Mike nodded. A few minutes later, I heard him start the water. Meanwhile, I filled a large bucket with ice. That was three days ago. I don't know who was right when we argued about the day of the week, but I'm pretty sure today is Friday or Thursday. I had to call in sick for Mike every day since his bath. He had spent the rest of that night and the next day in the tub. I had to help him stay there a couple of times, but he finally lay still. The hatchling needs it cold. When his eyes changed, I knew it was time. The eggs were inside his head. There wasn't much brain matter left, and they were so brilliantly blue. The farmer's market is open only on the weekend, so I've been to grocery stores all over the city, replacing plain chicken eggs with our sapphires. That job is done. I'm enjoying a cup of coffee before heading home. Five chicken eggs in my purse. They're brown and white. Nothing special. So I think I'll have a big omelet for dinner. It is growing quickly. 
I could hardly sleep last night between filling the tub with ice every two hours and singing to it while it accompanied me. Whenever I'm in bed, I can hear it thrashing against the side of the tub as it feeds. It's been feeding almost all the time since I gathered its eggs. And it's not a worm anymore. It's something much greater. It will grow into something greater still. I know it. My coffee is almost gone and I'm getting hungry. So I'm going to finish up, go home and make that omelet. I have one more big task to do tonight. After I clean the dishes and fold our laundry, I will undress and clean myself in the upstairs shower. Then I will fill the tub with the ice I bought at the corner store. I will make myself a nest among the cubes, and then I will lay down. It no longer needs me to care for it, but it does need more sustenance to build its cocoon and survive the final transformation. I do not think it will hurt. In our final tale, we join a man, David, recounting his childhood experiences after moving to a new town. A new town means new locations for established tradition and a new Sunday school for him and his sister. A safe place, right? But in this tale, shared with us by author Daniel J. Green, when the deacon's back is turned, David learns of a somewhat less safe place just beneath his feet And according to the kid who informs him, David's going to have to go down there. I join Jeff Clement, Matthew Bradford, Jessica McAvoy, Nicole Goodnight, and Aaron Lillis in performing this tale. So if another kid challenges you to go into a haunted place as a part of your token initiation, you can't really refuse, can you? You're just going to have to head down into the tunnel of St. Ambrose Church. Shortly after I turned 10 years old, my family moved to a small town in eastern British Columbia called St. Ambrose. At that time, the town was predominantly Catholic, just as it was when it was founded in 1891, after large deposits of copper ore were found deep below the rocky terrain. For years, it was just a mining hub inhabited by poor Southern European immigrants. But once the cash started flowing, families settled in for good. Eventually, a church was built, a big gaudy cathedral with long stained glass windows and heavy stone walls. Today, over a hundred years later, St. Ambrose is somehow still surviving, church and all. Though money isn't as easy to come by. I can't tell you why anybody would still want to live there, though. Not after what happened in that old church. I can sure as hell tell you I'm never going back. 
Early in that September, I was sitting at the kitchen table of our new house, eating breakfast with my older sister, Jules. The television had been left on in the living room, and my mother was watching it intently as she shoveled spoonfuls of shredded wheat into her mouth. I wasn't particularly interested in the morning news, but by the look on my mother's face alone, I could tell that whatever story she was watching wasn't good. I turned in my seat to see, but as I did, she stood up and crossed the living room to turn it off. David, Jules, get your butts in gear. It's 8.30. I peeked around her body in time to read the headline. No leads in search for missing Cranbrook teenager. Then my mom aimed the remote control at the TV, and the sounds and images extinguished in a pop of electrified dust. That morning was the first day of school for my sister and me. She was going into grade 8, and I was going into grade 6. Our age difference meant we would be attending different schools for the first time in our lives. Jules going to middle school, while I went to elementary. By the end of her first day, Jules had made a bunch of new friends. I wasn't so lucky. I've never been good at making friends. Had it not been for the Sunday school classes at St. Ambrose Church we had to attend every week, my sister and I probably would have drifted apart completely, leaving me alone with my nerve-shot mother in our empty house. As Jules entered adolescence, she rarely made an effort to hang out with me, her shy, awkward younger brother. But on Sundays, Jules was forced to spend time with me in the basement of St. Ambrose Church, in a musty room only big enough to hold about ten kids and a few oversized desks. We both hated it, but at least then we had something in common. The classroom had no windows, and the walls were always cold and dewy, as if the raw earthen foundation had merely been covered with some carpet and wallpaper. I may have been imagining it, but I swear I could smell the soil below my feet every time I entered that room. It was always Deacon James who taught those classes. He was a wiry man with a bad comb over and piercing blue eyes. His clothes always fit too loosely over his gaunt frame, and when he knelt to pray you could hear the joints in his knees crunch and pop. But during those classes he always made an effort to be jovial even if it was in an uncomfortable, forced sort of way. As odd as Deacon James was, though, we were just happy that it wasn't our priest who taught those classes. His name was Father Douglas. He was a stout man with thick, bulbous features. He had a plump mouth, a red bumpy nose, and fat, immobile-looking hands. I never once saw him without his emerald green chasuble, a sort of cloak that perpetually fluttered behind him like a shadow, and I never once saw him smile. His face was permanently fixed with an impenetrable grimace that seemed to hold divine power over the congregation. We may have thought that Deacon James was a bit strange, but he was a hell of a lot better than Father Douglas. At the end of each Sunday school class, Deacon James had a habit of turning off all the lights and placing a single candle in the center of the room. He then had us form a circle, hold hands and close our eyes as we prayed over it. Deacon James said that we had to be completely silent and pray very hard. If we did that, God would answer us. 
Since there were no windows in the basement, prayer time was always done in complete darkness, save for the small amount of light cast by that single candle. Once, halfway through prayers, I got the eerie sensation that something was right behind me in the darkness, just out of reach of the candle's light. I turned around very slowly to look, hoping nobody would catch me opening my eyes. Peering into the blackness, I saw nothing but the dancing shadows cast by the candle's flickering flame. But when I turned back around, I saw Deacon James staring me dead in the eyes. My heart leapt, and there was a loud pounding of blood in my ears. I half expected him to call me out in front of the class, but instead he simply closed his eyes and resumed his prayers. It was a few weeks after this incident that Jules and I were sitting in prayer circle, waiting for Deacon James to turn off the lights and join us. He had just gone off into one of the storage rooms to find more candles, when Michael, one of the older boys, spoke to me. Hey, Davy boy. You don't talk too much, do you? I felt my cheeks burn upon being singled out. I guess I... You're new, aren't you? You and your sister. You're not from St. Ambrose, are you? We moved here last month. A malignant sneer spread across his freckled face. So, how was it? How was it? Yeah, initiation. How was it? I remained silent for a few seconds, hoping he would elaborate. Instead... He held me in suspense. I don't know what you're talking about. He looked around the circle with mock astonishment. Hold on, are you telling me you've been part of this youth group for a whole month now and you haven't done the walk? I felt sweat beating on my upper lip. I looked down in embarrassment. No? I mean, I don't know. I don't think so. I saw some of the other students trying to hide their amusement. What? What is it? It's simple, really. All you have to do is walk to the end of the tunnel here in the basement. You go to the end, touch the wall, and come back. I furrowed my brow. That's it? Wait, you haven't heard the stories? Jules came to my aid. Oh, stop being such an ass, Michael. Obviously, we don't know the stories. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, sorry, jeez. I mean, I'll tell you, but it's only going to make the walk that much harder. I mean, once you know the truth about this place, that is. We're waiting. Michael paused and leaned into the circle, lowering his voice to a near whisper. So, there is a family buried in that tunnel. It was a priest that did it. Father Clarence. It happened like decades ago during the Depression. Now here, people were starving to death. The whole families were packing up and heading for the city. Father Clarence begged them to stay. No people meant no money for the church. But slowly the congregations got smaller and smaller. Father Clarence threatened them with the wrath of God if they even hinted that they might leave. Told them it was blasphemy to go. But when even the deacon's family left... Well, Father Clarence lost it. 
He went to the deacon's house in the middle of the night and went on a rampage. Killed the entire family, loaded their bodies up in his truck and buried them in the tunnel of this very church. The next day, they found Father Clarence hanging from the church bell. Clara, one of the older girls listening in on our conversation, stepped up. That's such bullshit. Oh yeah? Says who? You? Don't you think they would have found the bodies by now? A whole family in a wall? Come on. That would take some serious engineering. Wait, why is there a tunnel in the church? There are some theories on that. Clara began to speak, but was cut off by the sound of Deacon James clearing his throat. <clears throat> we all turned to see him towering over the threshold of the door behind us. The room fell silent. He folded his arms over the silver cross that hung from his slender neck. He was sweating and looked pale. How could you little brats even think about speaking of a holy father of this church in such a manner? His voice was angry, stern, unlike anything I had heard from him before. It's blasphemy is what it is. It's sin. As a result of what I just heard, we are doing three rosaries this session instead of one. And I hope you all go home tonight and ask God for forgiveness. It's terrible what you've said. Just terrible. More than anger, there was fear in his eyes. And another emotion that seemed to boil below his very flesh. Beads of sweat formed at his brow, and the fabric below his underarms was soaked. I'm very disappointed. Very disappointed. After all three rounds of rosaries, Jules and I made to leave the classroom, but Deacon James called for me to stay behind. Hearing this, Michael shot me an evil smile as he passed through the classroom door. His voice was overly soft and reassuring now, and he knelt down to speak to me as if I were a toddler. Everybody else had left by this point. It was just me and him. David... You don't have to do it. I stared into his deep, black pupils. What? You don't have to do it. The walk. He placed a hand on my shoulder, and I felt a cold shiver run down my spine. It was at that moment I realized Deacon James had been standing behind the door listening to our entire conversation while he was supposedly looking for candles. Yeah, I know. I tried to hide the inexplicable terror surging through my body. Something about his hands, their touch, the smoothness of them, like they were finely coated in wax, made me uneasy. He patted me on the head and smiled. Good boy. You're dismissed. That night, I had a disturbing dream. It was the first time I had ever experienced sleep paralysis. In the dream, I was lying in bed in complete darkness. Then from behind the closet door, 
Father Douglas appeared, illuminated by a single white candle. He spoke something very quietly, something in Latin I couldn't understand. I tried to call for help, but I couldn't. I was completely frozen. Oddly, what was most terrifying was the smell of the candle. There had always been something horribly sweet and cloying about the candles at St. Ambrose. Heavy, floral, resinous, but also indescribably musky. As I lay there, unable to move, Father Douglas climbed onto my bed and knelt over me. He reached down and clasped a hand over my mouth. Then looking me right in the eyes, he blew out the candle plunging us both into impenetrable darkness. I bolted upright in bed, still feeling the palm of Father Douglas's hand imprinted on my mouth. Somehow the smell of the candle seemed to linger in the room. When I stepped into the church that following Sunday, the smell of the candles nearly made me sick. There seemed to be hundreds of them all around. Each spewed their choking odor into the church, many with such long wicks that their flames emitted an oily black smoke that hung in the air and seemed to cling to the back of the throat. As usual, I was distracted for most of the mass. I went through the rituals without as much concentration as is necessary to tie my shoelaces. But then as Deacon James rose to the altar to give his portion of the sermon, I felt a strange urge to pay attention. He seemed to have shrunk in stature since the last time I had seen him. He hadn't shaved, his eyelids were dark and baggy, and he had barely put any effort into combing his thin strands of brown hair over his freckled scalp. He placed both hands flat on the pulpit, and instead of opening up a page in the Bible as was his routine, he just stared out into the congregation. Then, after surveying the crowd in silence for a few seconds, he began to speak. I understand that it is usually during this portion of the Mass that I offer some slight respite from the solemnity of the preceding sermon. Today, however, I have a story to tell you, one in which I hope you will find a valuable lesson. To my horror, I realized that Deacon James was speaking directly to me. His eyes had locked onto my form, and it seemed as if the entire congregation had melted away, leaving only him and me in that stuffy, lurid church room. Before I ever came to St. Ambrose, I was the deacon at Our Lady of the Lakes in Fort Simpson. One summer night, as I lay sleeping, my bedside phone rang. It was one of the members of the church. Her voice sounded panicked, scared. She could barely speak. She begged me to come to the hospital as soon as I could. You see, her husband had suffered an accident, and she wasn't sure he was going to survive the night. The priest at Fort Simpson being away that week, I was the only one available to perform hospital visits and in this case, to give a blessing before the man passed on. When I arrived, the man lay quiet and pale in the hospital bed. He was conscious, but he was weak from having lost so much blood. 
His wife pulled me aside and told me what had happened. He had been working in the garage late into the night, trying to get ahead on some basement renovations, when he cut his own hand off with a radial arm saw. The husband had told his wife that his sleeve had caught in the blade, which then pulled his arm down underneath. He had lost so much blood as a result of the wound that he passed out on the floor of the garage. If it hadn't been for his wife coming out to check on him, he could have died there in the night. I cringed listening to the story and gave my condolences to the family, but wondered how on earth such a thing could have happened. The logistics of it didn't quite make sense, but I was there to give a blessing, and I figured I ought to do it before I became too faint. The wife left me alone with the man, and I bent over him and gave the blessing. But before I could turn to leave, the man touched my arm with his one remaining hand. Father, he said, his vision probably still blurry. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, he repeated over and over. It wasn't an accident, he said, tears welling up in his eyes. I stared at him incredulously as he went on in barely a whisper. Matthew 5.30, he said, if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. Having uttered those words, he drifted back to sleep. Shaken, I bid farewell to his wife and went home to bed. Later, of course, the true story came out. The man had been living a covetous life, finding no peace in the word of the Lord or the love of his family. He became overwhelmed by temptation and curiosity. He had for months played with the idea of an affair, but never dared to act on it. That is, until one night when his curiosity overwhelmed him and he sought contentment in the arms of another woman. Immediately after the wretched act, the man was filled with the most sordid shame imaginable. Feeling the world crumbling beneath his very feet, he took to heart the words of our prophet Matthew, and with his radial arm saw, he severed the offending limb from his body. Deacon James paused, and total silence filled the church. I thought I could hear those grotesque candles sputtering and popping along the stained glass windows. Now... I believe there is a double lesson to be gleaned here. First, in reading and interpreting the Bible, we as good Christians must be able to tell the difference between literal calls to action and mere parable. Second, but perhaps most important, we must ever work to quell that most evil, ungodly drive that dwells within the bosom of too many of us who live today. Curiosity. Still holding me in his gaze, he stepped down from the pulpit. Father Douglas rose from his seat to take his place, and the congregation rose with him. Deacon James passed from sight behind the altar, and at last I felt free from his vice-like gaze. 
My mind reeled as I came out of mass into the church foyer. The deacon's story had left me feeling uneasy and vaguely threatened. My head still in a fog, Michael sided up to me and dropped his arm over my shoulder. Hey, Davey. Hey. You coming to the youth camp out tonight? Youth camp out? Yeah, we're watching movies, playing games, and camping out in the basement. The following Monday was a professional development day at both schools, meaning it would be a three-day weekend. Everybody's going, plus it's the perfect opportunity for you to do the walk. My heart sank. Part of me hoped he had forgotten about it, or that it was just something he had made up on the spot to mess with me that morning in Sunday school. I thought again about the deacon's story, and a sickening dread came over me. Look, I'm not doing the walk. I know it's tradition, but I'm not doing it, okay? Michael laughed and placed a hand on my shoulder. <laughs> oh, Davy, of course you're gonna do the walk. Just like everyone else. You know why? I stared at him, not allowing him to see my growing unease. Why? Because I know things. Things about you. Things you might not want anybody else to know. My hands started to shake, and I slid them into my pockets. <laughs> yeah? Like what? No, I don't know. Maybe that your dad's a killer. That you left your town to escape his reputation. That you're never gonna see him again because he's locked up for life. My vision spun. I thought I might pass out. There was something crawling through my guts. <laughs> A feeling like panic, anger, and fear all at once. I felt like a wounded deer watching as wolves approached my raw, bloodied body. How? How do you know that? The ease with which he spoke of my darkest family secret stung me to my core. You come to know certain things when your dad's the chief of police. So, tonight... You'll come to the campout, and you'll do the walk. And nobody will have to know about your daddy the slasher. He slapped me hard on the back, and walked away before I could respond. I stood there, staring at the red-carpeted floor, watching the pattern spin and swirl. Next thing I knew, it was Jules slapping me on the shoulder. David, come on! Mom's been waiting in the car... What's wrong with you? You look sick. I tried to look at her, but my vision failed. Maybe you should just go home. If Mom sees you're sick, she might let me skip too. Come on. We walked out to the parking lot, where my mom put her cheek to my forehead to check for a fever. It was a normal temperature, but she said just this once she would let me skip, seeing as I looked so pale. At home, I poked down a bowl of tomato soup and a grilled cheese sandwich. Mother's orders. Later, I convinced her that I felt better, and that I wanted to go to the youth camp out. I never lied to my mom, but I felt it was something I had to do. For her, as much as for myself. I didn't know if Michael was bluffing about the blackmail, but I sure as hell didn't want to test him on it. 
It was just a little walk. Go down the tunnel, touch the wall, come back. Hell, tell everybody it was scary that you heard some creepy disembodied voices coming from the wall. Give Michael a show. That's what he wanted, after all. A show. And afterward, things would go back to normal. I was sure of it. My mom dropped me off at the church at 7 o'clock. Jules absolutely refused to go, saying she wouldn't be caught dead at church on a weekend night. Inside, Deacon James had set up a movie projector in the classroom, and a few kids had already spread out pillows and sleeping bags on the damp, hard floor. I couldn't believe they actually wanted to spend the night there. I had told my mom I would call her when I wanted to get picked up. There was no way I was staying overnight in that basement. When I saw Deacon James, I noticed immediately that he had become even more disheveled than he had been that morning at Mass. His shirt collar stuck up in the back, his comb-over drooped over his ears and the back of his neck, and his skin glistened with a fine layer of sweat. His movements were frantic, and his hands shook as he set up the DVD player at the front of the classroom. Every time he walked past me, I caught a whiff of what smelled like a mixture of body odor and those candles. After struggling with the projector for about 20 minutes, Deacon James slid a DVD copy of Ratatouille into the machine and pressed play. Before it started, he walked to the front of the room and stood in the light of the projector to grab our attention. Under no circumstances are any of you permitted to leave this room while I'm gone. I will be back in precisely 30 minutes. Do you understand? Where are you going? Deacon James wiped the sweat from his forehead. There have been... There, there are currently unforeseen circumstances to which I must attend. Now, I trust you will all be good. With that, he fled from the room and closed the door behind him. I half expected to hear him lock the door from the outside, but he didn't. I heard his feet pounding up the wooden stairs, leading up from the basement. By their pacing, it sounded as if he were running. Michael turned to me. Well, well, well. Looks like your initiation will come sooner than expected. I thought we'd be up all night waiting for that guy to fall asleep. My heart leapt. But you heard Deacon James. He said to stay here. What if he comes back and catches us? <laughs> well, that's all part of the fun. No time like the present. Come on, up. Let's go. I swallowed and rose up on wobbling legs. Michael led me out of the classroom and down a dark hallway, one which I had never noticed before. I could barely see a few feet in front of my face. I held out both hands as I walked, expecting at any moment to crash into some unseen object on the floor. Finally, Michael reached up and pulled on a thin chain connected to a light bulb in the ceiling. The 60-watt bulb sparked to life and illuminated the narrow, slanting hallway. As we walked, I got a strange feeling of vertigo from the angle of the descent. 
It was almost imperceptible to the eyes, but you felt it in your legs, each step a little lower than you would expect. Finally, we got to a single doorway at the bottom of the hallway. It was painted white with a simple brass knob and no keyhole. Screwed to the door and the wall was a rusty hasp and padlock. It's locked. He put his hands to the side of his face in mock surprise and laughed. <laughs> oh no, you're not getting out of this that easy. From a pocket in his jeans, Michael produced a Phillips head screwdriver and went to work loosening the screws from the wall. When the last screw pulled loose, the hasp swung free. At this point, I knew if Deacon James caught us, we would be in serious trouble. Michael took a step back and made a ridiculous gesture toward the door. After you. I cautiously pulled the door open and stared at what lay beyond. It was one of the strangest things I had ever seen in my life. The red carpet stopped at the threshold of the door, and on the other side, the floor was just compacted dirt. The walls were bare and uneven, though I couldn't see very far into the darkness. The tunnel seemed to swallow up the light cast by the single weak light bulb at the center of the hallway behind us. He placed a hand on my back and thrust me inside, closing the door behind me. Have fun. I stumbled forward with my hands outstretched to protect myself from what lay in the darkness. I inched my way forward, now blinded by the all-consuming darkness. I dragged my hands along the dirt walls for guidance, every now and then dislodging a chunk of soil or a rock. The sound of the falling debris was deafening in the absolute silence. After what seemed like a lifetime of crawling forward, my right hand landed on a large, cool object. I placed my other hand on it and realized it was rock. I slid my hands to the left, across the stone, and discovered there was a small gap and then another massive, cold stone. The space in between the stones was barely half a foot wide. Though I was blind, I could visualize my surroundings with an uncanny clarity at this point. I could see in my mind's eye the cold, damp walls, the two massive stones, and the dark, mysterious space in between them. For some reason I still can't explain, I became possessed with an indescribable curiosity. Why I didn't turn back at that point, I really can't say. Something in me told me to go on to the very end of the tunnel. I placed my arms on either side of the two stones and began to squeeze my body through the gap. As I twisted and contorted my body, I realized there was some kind of tarpaulin material on the other side. Determined to reach the end of the tunnel, I kept pressing through, scraping my arms against snags in the stones and dislodging more clumps of dirt along the way. Then, to my surprise, I emerged into what I could only assume was some kind of chamber. The air was heavy and damp, but what was most shocking was the smell. 
I knew that smell. The candles. The unmistakable smell of the candles at St. Ambrose Church. But there was something else. Something musky and metallic. Like a cross between a mechanic's shop and a deli. It was horrible. It was so thick I could taste it. I covered my mouth and nose with my shirt, but the stench came through. My head pounded with the smell. I started to feel claustrophobic, shut in as though by the mere presence of that suffocating odor. I turned around and grabbed blindly for the tarpaulin, but it wasn't there. In the stench and the darkness, I had lost my bearings completely. I took a step toward where I thought the entrance to the chamber was, but merely fell against a dirt wall. I began to panic, my heartbeat slamming in my ears, the darkness pressing in against me. I flailed my arms in desperation, trying to get an idea of where I was in the choking silence and pure blackness. Reaching up, my hand grazed a thin chain like the one in the outside hallway, and I pulled at it frantically. A light bulb sparked to life, and it felt as though I were staring directly into the sun. Suddenly I was consumed by a new kind of blindness. Blue, green, red spots swirled in my eyes, and I shrank to the floor, falling on top of what sounded like a garbage bag. Slowly my vision returned, and I found that what I had fallen onto was in fact a garbage bag. I stood and glanced around the chamber in which I now found myself. Dark patches of brownish red stained the floor and the walls. There was a low iron stove at the end of the chamber, over which stood a crude iron vat. From the stove, a rusted pipe led through the wall and out of the chamber. On a small table sat blocks of a whitish-yellow substance, some unmarked bottles, knives, and a few other tools I couldn't exactly identify. I walked toward the table and discovered it was from here that the choking odor was emanating. I ran my hand along one of the blocks. It felt like wax. I lifted one of the bottles to my nose and drew back in disgust, the sweet scent instantly nauseating in such close proximity. I looked under the table and saw a box full of white candles all of which had been embossed with blue crosses in the image of the Virgin Mary. They were the same candles that were used during Mass and prayers during Sunday school. My head began to swim in the pungent stench of the candles. I turned, almost dry-heaving, and realized the garbage bag I had fallen onto was just one of many. Queasy, but still morbidly curious, I approached one of the bags and looked inside. At first, I couldn't really tell what I was looking at. It was full of a coarse, white substance. I reached in and let it sift through my fingers. Salt. I reached deeper into the substance and recoiled with horror when my fingertips brushed across what felt like a cold, limp, human hand. I opened another bag, 
This time I didn't have to dig. The tip of a knee joint protruded from the salt. In another lay a butchered chunk of what looked like a human shoulder blade. My vision blurred, and I ran to the vat at the end of the room. I leaned over the edge and vomited into it. But the smell that arose from inside it only made me vomit more. I discovered then that it was this vat that had been giving off that greasy, metallic smell I had noticed upon entering the chamber. I wiped my mouth and looked around, letting out an animalistic wail. I felt as though I had stepped through a portal into hell. Doubled over from a pain in my stomach, I ran back to the tarpaulin and forced my way through. I couldn't stand another second in that evil place. Once on the other side, I ran. I didn't hold my hands out in front of me to protect myself from the unseen. I simply ran. Soon, I saw light shining from under the door to the hallway, and I charged toward it, crashing against it and falling to my knees. I grabbed the handle with both hands and twisted it, but the door wouldn't budge. I screamed and threw all my weight at it. Michael! Let me out! That son of a bitch had locked me in there. I pounded on the door and cursed at him. No reply. Then it all dawned on me. Everything seemed perfectly clear. Of course, the door would be locked. Of course, I would find the secret chamber of horrors. It's all part of it. I felt so embarrassed. How could I have let him trick me like that? I knew it was a trick, after all, didn't I? Hadn't I known all along? Yet I still ran like a little baby when I saw those fake severed limbs. I did exactly what he wanted. God damn it. I pounded on the door again. Okay, Michael. You got me. Now let me out. I waited. Silence. I pressed my ear to the door and listened for laughter, for mocking voices. But it was dead silent. He was gone. He really wasn't there. I knew something wasn't right, but somehow I held on to hope, fooled myself into thinking that this was all just a stupid game. I pounded on the door again and again. I began to scream. I screamed at the top of my lungs and pounded until I felt faint and dizzy. I shrank to my knees and began to sob. Nobody was coming. I stared back down the dark tunnel and saw a faint light coming from the chamber. I wondered why anyone would go through all the trouble to produce such horrors. I wasn't yet sure if it was fake or not, but I knew something wasn't right. I thought back to Deacon James's sermon, the sweat on his brow, the smell that wafted from his clothes. The door opened and I fell into the hallway. Beams of light shone in my eyes and once again I was blind. 
It could have been a few minutes later or a few hours. By that point, time was meaningless. A man was calling to someone down the hall, and then he was lifting me by the shoulders. I was asking everybody what happened, but nobody said anything. Somewhere along the way, my mother embraced me, sobbing, before I was taken to the police station. I told an officer everything I had seen in the tunnel, and everything that I had done with Deacon James. I asked where he was, but the officer said nothing. I learned that Michael and the rest of the kids at the church campout had been removed by the police. For almost an hour, none of the kids at the campout said a word about where I was because they thought they would get in trouble. It was only when the police implied that I may have been kidnapped by the deacon that Michael confessed. It was gradually over many months that I learned the fate of Deacon James. He had left St. Ambrose Church that Sunday night around 7.30pm and was later found dead at 7.42pm by a young couple who were out for a drive in the mountains. His car was found wrapped around a tree on the edge of a quiet forestry road, totaled by the speed of impact. It appeared he had afterwards been pulled from his mangled vehicle and disemboweled in the woods, though his internal organs were never found. A strange symbol was carved into his chest and his lips were sewn shut. By the time Michael confessed that he had locked me in the tunnel, the police had already searched Deacon James's house and had found his makeshift human butcher shop in the basement. St. Ambrose Church was immediately shut down. All of the church candles and the blocks of wax recovered from the chamber in the basement were tested and found to be composed of the same materials. It was determined that the candles had been made from rendered human fat. The DNA recovered from the deacon's basement matched that collected in the church's underground chamber. It was thought that on the dark forested highway between the parishes in St. Ambrose and Cranbrook, Deacon James would pick up hitchhikers, campers, anybody who looked suitable, and kill them. Then he would butcher them at his house, bring them piece by piece to the basement of the church and boil their fat to make candles. He added generous amounts of fragrant oils to the mix to mask the fatty smell, and would burn them at mass and during Sunday school prayers. Nobody knew why Deacon James was killed that night, let alone why in such a brutal fashion. Of course, everybody felt he deserved it, but somebody wanted him dead that night. And Deacon James knew it. He was running from somebody. Somebody with sinister connections. I live on the opposite side of the country now. In the Maritimes. Far away from what remains of the town of St. Ambrose. I hear everybody's move away. Except for a few Presbyterian families who moved in and built a new church after St. Ambrose was demolished. 
I don't know what goes on there now, and it wouldn't bother me any if I never knew. Sometimes I can go weeks, even months, without thinking about my time as a student in Deacon James's Sunday school classes. Sometimes I feel like I might actually be able to lead a normal, peaceful life here on the Atlantic. But sometimes I sit up and wonder if something in me hasn't changed. Sometimes I wonder if there isn't something irredeemably unholy about praying to God over a burning cylinder of human fat. I don't know what Deacon James was, who he was affiliated with, or to whom he prayed during those prayer circles. All I know is we sure as hell weren't praying to the same God. Sometimes I still experience sleep paralysis. Only now it's not Father Douglas, I see. Now it's always Deacon James. And now when I see the glowing orb of light approaching my door and all my muscles constrict and refuse to budge, I don't just smell that sickeningly sweet scent. I taste it. I feel the greasy smoke coat the back of my throat and lungs. I feel my bedsheets turn to coarse salt. I stare up at the dirt ceiling and watch as Deacon James stares down into my eyes, into the garbage bag, the deep chamber lit by his single candle. And as he smiles and places a hand over my mouth, he blows out the flame. The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.